getting all this preliminary stuff, man. All this teaching and singing before, and I'm about ready to die back there, man. I hope you're ready. I'm going to be hopefully not pontificating at all, but preaching the Word of God if I can survive it. I'm, I'm, is anyone else just pumped right now? My gosh, my heart is racing. Could be the plaque, I don't know. Um, hopefully not. I better get a sip and just calm down, huh? I want to start too, too fast. Mm. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. I'm, I'm pretty excited. Good morning, church. Welcome, newbies. Welcome, visitors. We're glad you're here, and welcome to you who are here all the time. Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. I almost felt like I didn't need to preach this morning after Colby did that little catechism piece. I felt like we just needed to adjourn and go get something to eat. Uh, but no, we're going to, you're going to hear the word of God preached. I put two days into this sermon. So um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I put three days. Um, so Acts 13 verse 16 is where we're going to begin. We are currently studying the first missionary slash church planting journey of the Apostle Paul, and he has his partner with him, Barnabas. Last week, we looked at how they finished their work, their presenting of the gospel in Cyprus, on the island of Cyprus, and, and then last week, we also looked at how they traveled to Perga and hung out there for about six minutes, and then moved on up north, 100 more miles up to Pisidian Antioch. Um, when they arrived in Pisidian Antioch, they looked for a Jewish synagogue, and there were tons of them there because there were several thousand Jewish families there. They looked for a Jewish synagogue where they could come and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, where they could come into these Jewish houses of worship and proclaim that, hey, your Messiah came. Believe in him. Let's celebrate. So they were out looking for a synagogue, they found one, they located one, and then on the next Sabbath day, they visited it during the worship service or just prior to the worship service. After the initial prayers and readings were completed, the synagogue leader invited them to address the congregation, as was the custom. If you had a visiting rabbi, which Paul was, um, he would have the right to address the congregation, encourage, exhort, teach the word of God. And he wanted to do that. He wanted to exercise that right. And so after everything was said and done and it got to the teaching time, they were ready to rock and roll. Now this is where we pick up in the historical narrative in the Bible. So let's pray and then get to work. Right? Amen? I need to pray. I'm a fallible man. Sinner. Saved by grace. I can screw this thing up in zero seconds. Probably will. Father, I need your grace. I need your mercy. I need your guidance. I need your instruction. I need your power. I need your Holy Spirit to come into me right now. I've been praying that all morning. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. And you know what, Lord? As the word goes forth, if the Spirit isn't moving in the lives of those who hear it, it does nothing. It's just a speech. It's just talk. It's just chatter. It's just a lesson. God, fill these people with the Holy Spirit. Fill this place with the Holy Spirit. 
May we submit ourselves to, to you in this time of teaching, humble ourselves, ready to listen, put away with our distractions. There are many. Life is hard. Life is tough. Some of us are struggling with illnesses. Some of us are struggling with financial issues. Some of us are struggling with relational issues. God, put those things away right now in this moment so that we may hear from you. And when we leave this place, we'll be changed and we can actually really do something about those issues. Help us now. Help me have mercy. And may you be exalted in this time of teaching. May the name of Jesus be raised up to the highest heights. It's all about him. And we pray these things in his glorious name. Amen. All right, guys, I'm getting pumped up. Let's do this. Verse 16. Let's just expound on this text. Let's get it rocking and rolling. We're going to look at a nice section today. We're going to begin to actually study Paul's first recorded sermon in Scripture. This is the first one he preached many times all over the place prior to this chapter, but none of his sermons are recorded. So we are going to begin to look at it. Let's begin in 16. It says, so Paul stood up, right? All right, the readings, the prayers, all those things were done. He was asked, would you like to say something to the congregation? Look what it says. He stood up. That's what they would do. They wouldn't sit down on a, on a bar stool and, you know, have a coffee. And let's just talk a little bit about the word of God, you know. Read from my journal a little bit. No, he stood up. He's going to proclaim the gospel. He stands up and it says, and motioning with his hand said, what did he say? He said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The first thing we notice is that it was Paul that stood up to address the people rather than Barnabas. This is a clear sign that Paul had assumed the role of primary leader. This will be the pattern for now on as we continue to examine the book of Acts. We will see Paul addressing those whether he's with Silas or whoever else it's him that it's he that addresses his listeners the listeners the audiences the masses the people he is the one that preaches he is the one that proclaims these other guys had the gift Barnabas was also a prophetic type of guy but we can see clearly here Paul stands up it's him that kind of assumes that role that is the pattern in the book of Acts and this is the typical pattern in churches today the the primary preacher, the one who preaches pretty regularly, is usually the primary or senior leader in a church. The pulpit is usually the primary place of communication and for direction as the word of God is carefully proclaimed. I recently had a conversation with a, a friend and local pastor who said that his church was about to hire an executive pastor. And I said, that's really cool, you know, because executive pastors, I mean, your church has to get to a certain size and you have to have a certain amount of staff members before you hire one because an executive pastor usually manages and disciples staff members and then performs other duties. You know, right now, he said, they're looking at three individuals and the one that he likes the most is very creative and innovative and those are catch words and phrases today in the church oh he's innovative you know as he preached the word of god he's innovative you're gonna be as innovative as he can be if he's proclaiming the word of god but he's creative and he's innovative and and he's talented at preaching very talented at preaching he said i said well he sounds a bit like you 
And he said he's just like me, but he's actually better at preaching the word than I am. And so I thought to myself and then said, since you enjoy discipling staff members and creating things and working on programs and planning the most, I mean, he really does enjoy doing those things more than anything else. I said, why don't you focus on those things and hand him the pulpit? Not a bad idea. He said, I've already considered that, but I don't think that it's wise for a lead pastor to give up the pulpit because that is where most of the marching orders come from. And I said, indeed, the main preacher should be the main leader and vice versa. That's a standard thing today. Whoever it is that's preaching all the time, that's the one that should be leading the church because as you're preaching the word of God, the church is getting its leadership. It's getting its direction. It's getting its imperatives. And we both fully agree on that, so he is not going to relinquish the pulpit. And I said amen, because I think some churches would do that. Now, here in our text, we really see a shining example of what I'm saying. Paul became the main preacher as well as the main leader. This is a wise practice. This is a biblical practice, but we've got to be a bit cautious. We must take into consideration something else. Paul was not a dictator. Paul was not a dictator who could do whatever he wanted to do. Paul was actually submitted to four different authorities. Four different authorities he was submitted to. Paul was submitted to the ultimate authority who is the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. First place of submittance right there, submission. Paul was submitted to the governing authority, which was the church at Jerusalem. That was the headquarters, that was the base where the apostles were doing ministry and leading the church in its various places from. So that was really the church's governing authority. Then Paul was also submitted to the sanctioning authority, which was the church at Syrian Antioch. That was the church that had sent him out, him and Barnabas and John Mark out. John Mark left. That was the sanctioning church. And Paul was also... Lastly, submitted to the authority of his co-leader, Barnabas. Paul may have been a primary leader, but guess what? Barnabas was still an elder, still a prophet, still a leader, and they shared responsibilities. One just really assumed the preaching thing, and the other one did other ministry and probably did some teaching and other things. But in any case, Paul still submitted to the authority of his, his co-leader, Barnabas. Now, one of the biggest mistakes a church can make I think it's clear it's that a church makes a huge mistake when it moves to appoint a senior leader pastor as the sole authority. This is dangerous for a number of reasons, primarily because it is not biblical. And whenever a church decides to not be biblical, the church is now in big trouble. The Bible shows us that churches are to be led by a plurality, multiple Elders, Titus 1, 5, James 5, 14, Acts 14, 23, 1 Tim 5, 17, Acts 20, 17, and so on and so forth. The authority and leadership responsibilities of a church are to be distributed amongst a group of elders, never held by one man. Never. One man has less wisdom than a group of qualified elders. You heard me. 
qualified elders. One man has less wisdom than a group. Elders hold one another accountable in doctrine and in living. Who holds a dictator accountable? Nobody. Dictators claim that they answer to God alone and that God alone holds them accountable. That's really funny because the Bible actually shows us that the way God holds his servants, his leaders accountable is through elders and members. You can't have this one-way accountability. The way God has established in his word is that you're going to report to other men. Well, I just report to God alone, and I make all the decisions and calls, and all of these guys, my directors or whatever we want to call them, you know, they just pretty much do what I tell them to do. Wrong. Anyone who claims to be under God alone is ignorant of the leadership protocol found in God's word. And sadly, there are many, many churches and denominations that are led this way. This isn't an attempt to exalt ourselves because we have an elder board and make them look bad. It's just not biblical. And it opens you up to a lot of problems. You know what happens when one of these dictators fails in morality or passes away? The church scrambles and can't figure out what to do. It goes into sheer panic because our head, our guy, has passed away. Our guy got caught in adultery and is gone. Our guy was addicted to porn. Our guy just simply retired. Now what do we do? You can't build it all on one guy. Build it on Jesus. Build it on elders. Qualifications of an elder that they all have to be able to teach. What did you see earlier when I said church is over? You saw an elder up here teaching. Praise God we have elders here that can do that and do it well. Can you see in your mind's eye why it's so important to have elders that lead and teach and something happens to me? Colby, you're up. Where are you at? Oh, there you are. Colby's like, don't do that to me. Pass you the baton. If I go down, brother, take it. Well, we don't know. We'd have to figure that out. But, man, we've got qualified men in place. Hallelujah. So it's important that you have an elder board. Now, Paul basically took this lead position, but he also submitted to the Holy Spirit to two churches and to Barnabas, who was also a church leader. The text says that when the teaching time commenced, he stood up and motioned with his hand. Paul basically directed everyone's attention to himself. And what did he say? He went, hey, over here, I'm going to speak. I don't know if he did that, but, you know, he probably, I don't know, he gave him the salute or something. But everyone focused on him. And once he had everyone's attention, once it was quiet, he said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Paul begins by addressing a, a mixed congregation of Jews and God-fearers. God-fearers could be a reference to Gentile non-Jewish converts um, or something like that, non-Jewish converts to Judaism or, or Gentiles who love the God of the Jews and obey some of the commandments. That's what God-fearers mean. Basically, it means people who love God but people who aren't Jewish, people who obey some of God's laws but people who aren't Jewish. 
Gentile believers, if you will. The point made is that there were both Jews and non-Jews in the room. Mixed group, mixed audience. Now the sermon that we're about to study begins in the next verse, verse 17, and then ends at verse 41. As we will soon see, it's all about Jesus. Amen? The entire sermon is about Jesus Christ. And I said last week, every sermon should be about Jesus Christ and what he's done. Our hope is in him. It's all wrapped up in him. And so we will see that the sermon is all about Jesus Christ. It is divided into three grand sections. In each section, Paul describes Jesus in three incredible ways. In section one, he refers to Jesus or points out that Jesus is the culmination of history. That's verse 17 to verse 22. In section 2, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, verses 23 to 37. And then in section 3, Jesus is the justifier of sinners, verses 38 to 41. Now let's kick it off with section 1. I'd like to read through it and then we're going to get to work. Amen? As if we haven't been at work already, but we're going to get more to work. All right, 17 to, what did I say? 17 to 22, I believe. Yes. It says, the God of this people, this is how Paul begins. He stands up, motion, says, listen to me, pay attention, here we go. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Led them out of what? Egypt. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that. Sounds like what my wife does with me. She puts up with me in the wilderness. Verse 19, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took place, all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And lastly, it says, and when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I love this, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do my will. <clears throat> now, Paul begins this most excellent sermon, by laying down a brief overview of Israel's history. He takes his listeners all the way back to the original patriarchs of the nation. He calls them fathers. I don't know what your translation says, but my ESV, which is an amazing translation, says fathers. He no doubt was referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now let's ponder the promises God made to each of these particular men. We'll begin with Abraham. Number one, Abraham. And just follow along as best you can. And all of this will, is completely relevant to where we're going. <clears throat> Abraham, in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God promised to little overview, make Abraham into a great nation, 
Bless Abraham. Make Abraham's name great. Make Abraham a blessing to others. Bless those who bless Abraham and curse those who curse Abraham. And bless all the families of earth through Abraham. That's kind of the original promise made. God came to Abraham and promised these things to him as he was told him, go into this promised land or head off into this particular direction. I'll lead you. And these are the promises that God made to Abraham. Isaac. Isaac was Abraham's son. And God promised to bring the Abrahamic promises through him or to continue to bring those promises that he had made to daddy through the son, through Isaac. In Genesis 26, 3 to 5, God promised to be with Isaac, bless Isaac, give Isaac and his progeny all the uh, countries of the promised land. I'm going to give you all these countries, all these parts of the land in the promised land. God promised to fulfill the oath he swore to Abraham. Okay, I made a pact with your dad. I'm, gonna, I'm telling you, I'm going to carry it out. He promised to make his descendants, Abraham and Isaac's descendants, same thing, as numerous as the stars of heaven, lots of people. And he promised to bless all the nations of the earth through his progeny. I'm going to bring people through you later on. Something's going to happen. I'm going to do something amazing through your seed. And we're going to bless the world through it. And number three, Jacob. Jacob was Isaac's son. And God promised to bring the Abrahamic promises through him as well. I'm going to continue to carry these things I promised to your grandfather. I'm going to bring them through you. In Genesis 28 or 27, uh, 28 to 29, and then in 28, 14 to 15, God promised to a whole bunch of them. Give Jacob the choicest portions of the promised land. Yeah, there's some areas there that aren't all that desirable. I'm giving you the best of the land. There's a couple of high plains. There's nothing out there but cacti. I'm hooking you up. He promised to cause the nations to serve Jacob. Man, these nations are going to serve you, pal. Wow. Make the peoples bow down to Jacob. That's pretty amazing. Make Jacob the Lord, little L, over his brothers. Cause Jacob's sons and mother to bow down to him. I'd have done anything to get my mom to do that back when I was in junior high. Of course, it was me bowing like this while the belt was going like this. Think of that. Mom and brothers bowing down to him. Curse those who curse Jacob and bless those who bless Jacob. Make Jacob's progeny as numerous as the dust of the earth. Make his progeny to the west, east, north, and south. Man, it's going to be massive. They're going in all directions. And then again, bless all the families of the earth through Jacob. To be with Jacob wherever he went. To bring Jacob back to the promised land later on. Now these are all the promises made to these guys. Paul brought his hearers back to the fathers or patriarchs because he knew that his listeners were not only familiar with these men, but they were familiar with the promises that God had made to them centuries and centuries before. And the thing that these people that were listening to Paul would have been anticipating more than anything was that blessed promise to bless the world. That's the one they were holding out for. 
Because in their minds, that meant he's going to bring someone through Abraham's bloodline, seed all the way down through history, someone, one person in particular, the Messiah, who is going to be that person who is going to bless our nation and go forth and bless the rest of the world. That's what they were banking on. That's what they were holding on. So what is Paul doing? Taking them back to the beginning. There were promises made. Back in history, God made promises to your fathers, to our fathers. Main promise, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel and of the world. So they're really pumped right now. Oh, he just gave us a history lesson and we love our history because we love to hear about the promises that God made. And boy, our mouths are just dripping. We're so thirsty for this promise of this Messiah to come. Oh, they were pumped and stoked for that. Every moment waiting, especially under that Roman um, oppression. Come, Messiah. Come, Deliverer. May that seed of Abraham come as how they felt, what they chanted every day, what they were praying for over and over and over. That is what they were eagerly anticipating. Now, Paul had, Paul had realized that this promise had already come true in and through Jesus Christ. He knew that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, but he knew that his listeners were ignorant of this reality, of this fact. So his goal was to proclaim and convince his hearers of that truth. God made a promise in history to bring our Savior through Abraham and to bless the world. God fulfilled that promise in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where Paul is headed here. That is the point of his entire sermon. He wants them to realize that the promise has come true. And he doesn't stop at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, does he? No. He goes on to remind them of their captivity and deliverance from Egypt. Immediately, Moses came to mind for these people. They were thinking of Moses. Hey, that deliverer of ours, that guy that brought us out of that nasty place that brick-making country. Well, who was Moses? Moses was a type of deliverer or type of savior. Moses brought the Israelites out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. Moses, the deliverer and savior, was a foreshadow of Jesus Christ, the ultimate and greatest deliverer and savior. He's a type. He's a shadow. He's kind of a precursor. Like a movie trailer, if you will. You get it? That's what Moses was. Not a savior in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense. He was a deliverer and he was a foreshadow of the one to come. Paul is also showing them how God carried his promises through history. It's as if he's saying God made promises to Abraham and carried those promises through Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. What he's doing is establishing a historical narrative of redemption for these people. God began with Abraham and then carried his promises through Isaac and then through Jacob and then through Moses. It's like he's establishing a chronology of God's plan of deliverance and salvation from start to finish. That's what he's doing. And he continues. He then mentions their time in the wilderness where God cared for them and preserved his promises. God did this despite their horrific attitude and 
tremendous sin. The Israelites were horrible while in the desert, man. They were that disobedient kid that you can't beat enough or put in a corner enough or give a zillion timeouts to. The belt didn't work on them. They were given to idolatry and complained day and night about their food. They complained about Moses' leadership. This guy stinks. Give us a new senior pastor. Paul tells them in verse 18 that God put up with them during that time. I love it. Put up with us? What are you talking about? We're the chosen ones. We're good. <laughs> Hold on a second. You were miserable there. He put up with you there. And he preserved his promises through that time. He preserved his promises through that time despite their ignorance, despite their idolatry, despite their sin. God preserved a remnant to carry those promises through. That's what God does. Now he skips ahead a little bit more and reminds them of the conquests of Joshua. Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land after Moses went to be with the Lord. During the seizure of the land, Joshua battled and destroyed seven nations. They are listed in Deuteronomy 7.1. They are as follows. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. <laughs> I know, whatever. <laughs> She's like, she knows the actual pronunciation of it. She's like, it's not the Parasites. Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A lot of ites got jacked up. All these ites, these seven nations, they all belong to what is called Canaan, basically. These are the Canaan, Canaanite nations, if you will, and they were all tremendously off course. Now, people often protest the destruction of these people. Atheists love to throw stones at Christians for the violence and death God incurred against these nations. He killed all these innocent people. What kind of God would do that? I could never love a God that could destroy seven nations. How many people is that? Millions? Yeah, probably. Seems like a legitimate claim. Have you ever had that thrown at you? I have. Many times. In defense of God's righteousness, I'd like to submit to you three reasons why God did what he did. This will be your apologetics lesson for the morning. Number one, God destroyed these nations because they were highly wicked and sinful. These were good people. No. The seven nations worshipped idols by burning their children alive on altars. How lovely. They engaged in all forms of sexual immorality. Homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, and male and female prostitution were absolutely common. These nations warred with one another regularly, slaughtering each other like cattle. These nations did not care for those in need and denied justice and relief for those who deserved it. In the past, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for similar reasons, didn't he? Yes, he did. Absolutely annihilated those places because of these same things. And how often do we not criticize God for doing that to those cities? These nations were the same. Now, here's something you need to know. You need to keep in mind that God waited 400 years to bring judgment on these nations. 400 years, God waited and gave them time to repent 
of their sin and respond to him by faith and repentance. 400 years. That's a mighty long time. How often do you desire justice right now from those who have wronged you right now? Do it now. Take them out. Right? God is a long-suffering God, the long-suffering God, 400 years. And what did they do? Plunge themselves further and further into sin and debauchery and idolatry, kind of like how the U.S. is doing right now. That's where we're headed. We are obsessed with sin. We love it. We exalt it. Pretty legitimate reason, if you ask me, although it breaks my heart to think of all of those people destroyed. It's very sad. Number two, God destroyed these nations because he did not want them to influence and corrupt the incoming Israelites or really anyone beyond those borders. In a way, this was God containing wickedness and sin. Oh, there's a fire of sin raging in that land. I will put it out so it does not spread. Eric's going to love this one, but Israel was his holy fireman. Came in and put it out. Number three, God destroyed these nations to purify and prepare the land which was to become the staging ground where God would bring the Abrahamic promises full circle and begin to bless all nations through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to make it a blank canvas. Start anew here. Start to build and usher in these promises is what God did. So there is a definite purpose behind what took place. Sad, yes, but God always gets his way and fulfills his will no matter who stands in his way. Now Paul's main point here was to show his listeners how God was faithful to prepare the land for the vast nation that he promised to bring through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is why he mentions the conquests, the conquering of these seven nations. Paul is essentially saying the promises were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then continued through Moses, and then through Joshua, who came in and prepared the land, who wiped out all the foes. But Joshua wasn't only a bearer, in a way, through his actions and work, promises God made to him. Joshua wasn't only a bearer of the promises, he was also the instrument God used to bring Many, if not at least one of those promises to fruition. The promised land was delivered to the Israelites by him. That was one of the promises. You're going to be a mighty nation. You're going to have to be a, there's going to have to be some real estate for you. And it was the promised land. Those choicest parts. And so promises were carried through him and even answered through him. Now, from the beginning of the Egyptian captivity to the securing and dividing of the promised land was a period of about 450 years. He mentions it there. He then moves to the time immediately after Joshua, the time of judges. The judges were charismatic military leaders 
who liberated Israel from her enemies and provided guidance for the people. The period of Judges spanned from the death of Joshua to basically the coronation of Israel's first king, King Saul. That's a period of about 350 to 400 years, another lengthy period of time. If you study the book of Judges, you will notice that Israel had, I think it's safe to say, 13 different judges. Some say 12. I did a study of it and came up with 13. And Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, she led with a guy named Barak, Gideon, Abimelech, Tola, Yer, Yephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. You guys have all heard of Samson, the guy who had his hair cut off and turned into a lala. Right? He used to be super strong and then cut his hair off and he couldn't lift a pencil to write his name. It's pretty sad. Now, <laughs> that's right, buddy. He's like, I can lift a pencil. That's right, you can. Now, some like to add Eli and Samuel to the group. Eli and Samuel, however, were not military leaders. Eli was a priest who provided leadership to the nation before Samuel was born and grown up. Samuel grew up and became a prophet who led Israel until Saul was anointed king. So far, Paul has established an incredible chronology of God's faithfulness. God gave Abraham promises and carried them on through all the way to Samuel. Do you see the pattern he's establishing here? Promises were made. I'm showing you how God carried them out through history. Big promise, Messiah coming. This whole period is like a thousand year period. A thousand years. That's a long time. How often we yearn for the promises of God to be answered now. In fact, my wife and I were talking the other day about just come back now, Lord Jesus. Prevent us from having to go through another election and all these things. A thousand years. Oh boy, how long? Right? And keep in mind again that the Greatest of all God's Abrahamic promises was Israel's deliverer, Jesus. That's the main thing. The one in whom God would bless all the nations of the world. Paul continued, he reminds them of how the Israelites desired a king. They desired a king. They wanted to be like the nations around them, the ones that they didn't destroy or the other ones. Up to this point, the nation had been a theocracy. God was their one and only king. But that wasn't good enough for them. They wanted an earthly or human king. God gave them, notice God gave them the king of what? Their choosing, Saul. They picked him. According to verse 21, Saul ruled for Israel for 40 years. Now that's the only reference in all of scripture that shows how long Saul ruled. How many of you have heard that and you, you know, you've just heard that and you thought, I thought he ruled for like two weeks, right? We tend to think he got in there, he blew it and he was done. The dude was in there for 40 years, Okay. We yearn, you know, we, we bicker and complain about a president for four or eight years. Imagine having this guy for 40. After the, you know, he kind of blows it. Wow, when's he going to go, right? Perpetual presidency. 40 years this guy reigned, and this is the only reference to Saul's length of rule in Scripture. As I alluded to, Saul wasn't a very good king. He started off fairly well, but his strong-willed nature and lack of humility led him into disobedience and sin. But God had a plan. God had a better person in mind to rule over Israel, and his name was David, a little handsome, ruddy fella. David was God's choice, you hear me? Saul was Israel's choice, David was God's choice. God will give you what you want, may not be what's best. 
David was God's choice. God found him while he was tending sheep. God selected him and God instructed Samuel to anoint him. Now it took a little bit of time for David to take the throne. It didn't happen immediately, but it did happen. David became the new bearer of the Abrahamic promises as well as the bearer of the covenantal promises that God had made to him. God actually made additional promises to David directly on top of those Abrahamics. Or they were commentaries on those Abrahamic promises or extensions of them or deeper teachings on them. Psalm 89, 20-37 is the most comprehensive passage about God's promises to David in Scripture. You heard it read earlier. That's the passage to look at when you want to see what promises God made to David. Now take notice of how Paul described David as a man after God's own heart and as a man who does all of God's will in verse 22. Wow, really? MacArthur comments, Some may question the designation of David as a man after God's heart. After all, he was guilty of cowardice and adultery and murder. A man after God's own heart, however, is not a perfect man. He is a man who sees his sin for what it is and repents of it. That is... David did. David may justly be termed a man after God's heart because unlike Saul, his greatest desire came to be the doing of God's will. That's how you are a man or woman after God's heart. One who recognizes the sin, repents of it, and seeks to do the will of God. And then he says it was from his line, David's line, that Messiah came. It was from his line that Messiah came. Some closing thoughts. I might end a little early today. Who knows? Maybe not. Oh, well. Come up with as much as I can come up with in the text. God's saying, I got a lot more. I'm like, I know, but I just can't find it sometimes. I'm dull. But these are important thoughts. Promises about Jesus were given to Abraham and those promises were carried through to David. David became a great king and a foreshadow of the greatest king, the king of kings, who would come about another thousand years later. And we've got thousands of years playing out here and throughout this whole history of redemptive history. Thousand years later. God fulfilled his Abrahamic and Davidic promises because he brought King Jesus into the world through a virgin named Mary. King Jesus preached the gospel. King Jesus healed the sick. King Jesus performed countless miracles. King Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. King Jesus was betrayed with a kiss and crucified and killed on a cross. And King Jesus was raised to life three days later, conquering sin and death once and for all. More than anything, Paul wanted his listeners to realize that Jesus the one who was crucified and risen is the culmination of the redemptive history because he is the promised king and Messiah. 
That was Paul's goal behind this overview of history, was to get them to the point to ripen them, if you will, for how he will proclaim Jesus later. But we see the point now being Jesus. And here's a gazillion dollar question for you. Do you listen? Do you personally realize this truth today? Do you realize that Jesus is the one whom God promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David? Do you realize that Jesus is the seed by which God has blessed all the nations of the world? Have you been blessed by the seed? Have you been blessed by the Son? Have you been blessed by the Savior King, Jesus Christ? Have you, friend? Have you? Blessed how? Blessed by his precious blood and resurrection through faith. Do you believe in him and have you received his blessings? Have you? If not, I'm pleading with you. Do not tarry. Do not wait. Confess your sins to him and receive him as your Lord and Savior at this very moment. You have no clue as to how much more time you have here. You think because you exercise and you have great health and you eat broccoli and everything else that you're going to get a good 75 years out of this life? What is the news filled with? Death upon death upon death upon tragedy. How arrogant for you to think that you're owed another day. How arrogant for you to think that if something were to happen to you, that your good works that you somehow have some level of merit with God through the good things that you've done and that that's why God will forgive you and allow you into heaven. Friend, you're not promised another moment, another minute. Plead with you. Do not tarry. Do not wait. Confess your sins and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Ask Him to make you a new creation. Ask Him to make you like David, a man or a woman or a child after God's heart. Ask Him to give you a desire to do His will. He will do as you ask. He will save and bless you. Call out to him right in this very moment through prayer. Seek him now. He is the culmination of redemptive history. 
He is the one whom God has sent to redeem and save sinners in Israel and beyond. He is the seed of Abraham, the blessed one. Believe him. He's your only hope. Without him, when you breathe your last breath, you will spend eternity paying for your own sin debt to a holy, perfect, just God. And your account is empty. You will pay with suffering. Do not tarry. Do not wait. Confess your sins to him and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in this very moment. Close your eyes and cry out to him in prayer. Save me. Do it. If you have received the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are so richly blessed. And I say, rejoice and give him praise. May we of one accord agree and proclaim Romans 15, 10 to 11, which says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. Maybe in this very moment you've become a new child of God by faith. Or maybe you're an older child of God by faith. You've been in Jesus for years. I want to encourage you, if you haven't done so yet, obviously if you're so new you haven't, come out to the river today and be baptized. Do it. Come out and make a public profession of your faith. Come stand before many witnesses and say, I'm sold out for Christ. I'm believing in his blood and in his resurrection. I've been redeemed by the Lamb. It'll be at 4 o'clock. The address we put up on the thing, it's 2871 Ladd Road here in Modesto, kind of in the country. That info is available at our website. If you need a ride, come see me. I'll pick you up. I'll not only pick you up, I'll dunk you. <laughs> I'll praise God with you. I'll celebrate, and so many others will. We'll get you there. We will get you there. Well, next week... Lord willing, we'll continue to look at this marvelous sermon. We'll begin to look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy. That's kind of the next section, so I'm really anticipating that and excited about that. But I'm really, really, really more excited about 4 o'clock today when we can all come together and go support our brothers and sisters in Christ and rejoice and celebrate in them as they get baptized. What a marvelous thing to witness. It's going to be great. We have a moment to respond to God. We call it communion.
by this time, I'm so peppered by the Holy Spirit, it's almost impossible for me to even talk about communion because of what it means. You know, today, you're going to have, this is the Lord's Day, you're going to have two, the only two Christian sacraments celebrated today. Communion in a minute, baptism later. We get to do both of them in one day. How marvelous is that? Communion is spectacular. It's wonderful. It's where we take the bread and we take the juice and we take those things because they represent, those elements represent the blood and they represent the broken body of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, what they represent is those two things. They give us an image. We can actually ingest this image in a way. They give us an image of our freedom. They symbolize our freedom because when Jesus was broken and bled and died, he freed us from the wages of sin. How marvelous is that? That's the Christian message. So we take these things in remembrance of what he did. Notice how I said did. It's finished. He said that on the cross. It is finished. So guess what? We don't have to leave this place trying to earn anything with God. It's a done deal. It's all in Jesus Christ. Those elements represent the fact that it's all in Jesus. He did the work. He did the impossible. He lived the perfect life. He died and took our sins. He was resurrected into this amazing resurrected body. He did it all. That's what the elements represent. We take them out of pure, sheer joy and elation, celebrating what he's done for you and I. Amen? Spend a moment before you take them in confession. Seek the Lord and ask Him to reveal to you sin. Stuff you did right before you got to church, stuff you did during worship, that's how dumb we are. I get to church and I start sinning. I'm not supposed to sin here. I sin everywhere I go. I'm a sinner. Confess your sin. Say, Jesus, I receive all that you've brought to me. I, I, I receive and I claim this salvation. I claim this resurrection power. I claim these elements. He did these things for me. I confess my sin. Confess your sins to him. If you're not in Christ yet, then don't take the elements. Don't bring judgment on yourself. This is a Christian sacrament, not a secular one. Maybe in this very moment you'd heed the words that you heard preached a minute ago and you'd repent right before you take those elements and you become a new creation. Then you take them and celebrate for the first time ever as a new creation. How wonderful. You have the permission to do that. Oh, most holy Father. What a wonderful thing you have done for sinners. Sinners like me, the worst of all, second in line to Paul, the chief. I'm the co-chief. We marvel at your word in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is good news. Promised good news from so far back. Promises come true in Jesus. We believe in him today and be cleansed of our sin and washed of those things and the guilt and the indictment of the law. Be clothed in the righteousness of the perfect one, Jesus Christ, made a child of you, God, adopted into your family. How spectacular. That's what the gospel is a message of. Take those who are estranged and bring them into your fold. That's what you've done 
We thank you for the word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for the bread. We thank you for the juice. We thank you for the broken body of Jesus and for his spilt blood. We thank you for the resurrection. May we celebrate and worship you. Continue to do that this morning as we've already been doing maybe in a greater way now because we've heard the gospel. I pray that if there's any in this room who do not yet know you, send your spirit. Regenerate them now, please. Illuminate them. We beg of you. And we thank you. The saints thank you for what you've done. We pray these things in the marvelous name of Jesus Christ. Amen.